When I think of Alaska, I think of wilderness. Probably, like most people, snow-capped peaks, rugged, glaciated landscapes, boreal forests. I don't think of the open cropland of my Midwestern roots. The forest that surrounds my cabin feels untouched and wild. But in reality, somebody probably homesteaded here 100 years ago. Alaska is full of wilderness, but there's also a long history of cultivation. I'm always surprised when parts of the state transport me to that Midwestern landscape of my youth. I've seen hay bales and open pasture, flat fields of cover crops, tilled soil and irrigation equipment, cattle roaming and munching on grass. There are places where wind whips through fields of barley. Like the Fairbanks Experiment Farm, which opened more than a century ago. Its 260 acres are a lab for the grand experiment of Alaskan agriculture. It looks like a farm. It changes as the season goes. We cut hay, we harvest the grain, you know, the fields change. It's just like any other farm. That's farm manager Alan Tony. He and researcher Ming-Chu Zhang take me through a field of crops in various stages of growth. We see barley, wheat, sunflowers, canola. They're the kinds of crops that are usually associated with the industrial agriculture of the lower 48. Not so much Alaska. Ming-Chu points to a stand of short stalks of wheat. Some are still green, but in June, others are already starting to turn brown. Um, here is the trial to select hot red spring wheat that suitable for Alaska. A few Alaska farmers grow wheat on a small scale, but it's tricky. Ming-Chu's developing a variety that you can grow in Alaska's short season and that meets quality standards. Grain growing is of particular interest to those looking to increase Alaska's food security, he says, because you can't just live on Alaska-grown potatoes. And if you want a potato every day, <laughs> 360 days, that would be an easy solution, but it may not be good health, especially for children. Children need the proteins, and also, it's hard for use a potato to feed the animals. You're listening to Season 2 of Out Here, a podcast about life in rural Alaska. On Episode 3, The Breadbasket. So far on Season 2, we've talked with people who are farming on a pretty small scale. Their operations are diversified, and they're not looking to export their produce outside of their region. But that's not the whole story of Alaskan agriculture. The state has more land and a lower population density than any other. Dreams to clear swaths of it, feed the state, and export crops have come and gone over the years. On this episode, we'll hear more about the history of those ambitions and the obstacles they've faced. Then we'll meet a cattle rancher and farmer who's doing his best to keep that dream alive. There's so much potential for agriculture here, but there's so little agriculture. You're listening to Out Here, and I'm Erin McKinstry. Part one, looking back. The first inkling of Western agriculture in Alaska 
began with Russian fur traders, trappers, and settlers. Importing food was a lot more difficult back then than it is now. So they encouraged gardening and livestock production. They established a few agricultural colonies, mostly along the coast. It was never huge, but it was something. Then the U.S. bought Alaska in 1867. But it wasn't until the end of the century that people started to spill north. I've tried it, I've starved and frozen all over this white barren land. Where the sea stretches straight white and silent, where the timberless white mountains stand. Brushes for gold and other minerals attracted miners to Alaska, and with them came an interest in local food production. More people met more mouths to feed. So the government opened research stations, like the one in Fairbanks, to test out what might work here. People dreamt of large-scale cattle and sheep ranching, reindeer herding, and grain farming. They held up Scandinavian models as proof that it could work. And farmers in Fairbanks were actually growing enough grain at the time to open a mill. And this is the source of my sorrow, as you will be forced to agree. When you learned all the rentless misfortune has dumped all her tailings on me. Then came the Great Depression and more homesteaders heading north in search of opportunity. As part of the New Deal, President Roosevelt was trying out all kinds of programs to help farmers who were struggling. I shall never forget the fields of wheat, so blasted by heat that they cannot be harvested. I shall never forget field after field of corn, stunted, earless, stripped of leaves. For what the sun left, the grasshoppers took. One of those programs was the Matanuska Colony Project. Just over 200 farming families were offered parcels in the Matanuska Valley of Alaska. The families moved from the upper Midwest to Palmer in 1935. And the project definitely faced its challenges, but it also left a legacy. The region is Alaska's biggest agricultural hub to this day. In 1955, more than half of Alaska's food was produced in-state. But by the 1960s, that had started to change. The industry never exploded. Today, Alaska ranks last in agricultural exports. It's widely cited that 95% of the state's food is imported. To be fair, the food system has become increasingly globalized across the country and the world since the 50s. But still, exactly why all those dreams never materialized is beyond my expertise and probably a topic worthy of a book or two. But through reading and interviews, I do have a few hints. Alaska was missing two crucial pieces of the puzzle, infrastructure and time. There was no rail or road access to a lot of the land suitable for agriculture in the state. Equipment, markets, transportation systems, processing facilities, all of that still needed to be built. The new industry was also vulnerable to boom and bust cycles and external forces. Also, it's just more expensive to do things here because Alaska's further removed from the rest of the country. Today, agriculture makes up a tiny portion of Alaska's economy. There has been growth in the number of farms in recent years, but Most of them are small, under 10 acres. There are some large farms here, I'm not saying there aren't, and 
I don't think people working in the industry would say that agriculture in Alaska has failed exactly. It's just that the model looks quite a bit smaller and more niche than was once envisioned. But climate change could change that. Back at the experiment station, Ming-Chu Zhang takes notes on a clipboard. He says that if climate models are right, the grain-growing areas of the Midwest will experience more drought, and Alaska will get their warmer, wetter weather. He wants to be ready if and when that happens. So that will make Alaska a potential bread basket, not only for Alaskans, but for the nation as well. Get all tools in the tool, toolbox ready for that event. The farm has other projects in the works, too, all driven by requests from in-state producers, like a type of barley that the state's breweries can use in their beer and cover crop trials to help farmers fix their soil organically. Part two, looking forward. Nothing like getting stared at by cows. <laughs> I'm standing in a field of multicolored cows outside of Delta Junction, Alaska. Farmer and rancher Scott Muggeridge stands next to me and points out the different breeds that surround us. That's a Galloway right back there, that little black one in the back. Scott has between 650 and 850 cows on his ranch at any given time. He raises his own and takes on other people's, too. Some people grass-feed their cattle from start to finish, but others, like Scott, use grain at the end. It's like a lot of the other things, you know, why the carrots are sweeter, why the cabbages are bigger and stuff, you know. Well, it's the same way in finishing cattle here. You know, why do they grade better? Why do they seem to fatten better? I, I can't quite explain it, but it's maybe it's the added sunlight. I don't know. <laughs> They're happy. <laughs> They are happy cows. I believe they're much happier in California. The cattle soon lose interest in my microphone and head across the field in a single file line. Scott fires up the four-wheeler, and we head to another part of the ranch. Scott and his son Justin also farm 2,300 acres. They grow almost all the feed that their cattle eat, and they're always trying out new things. So there's lots of crops growing here. This is a forage barley we import from Canada. This is some of those forage crops that, like we've seen earlier. Only His son Justin's busy baling hay when we pull up to meet him. He hops down from a green tractor, then heads across the field to meet us. This is my son Justin, my region, Aaron. Nice to meet you. Justin has farming in his blood. I, I grew up in the back end of a sale barn in, in southern Illinois, and I haven't ever done anything else. Don't know nothing else but cattle. <laughs> Scott and his family moved here from Nebraska in 2013. He's worked in the cattle industry his whole life. Where he's from, his operation would be considered small. But here in Alaska, it's one of the biggest in the state. We couldn't afford the capital it would take to run this operation in the lower 48s. But these Ag Covenant lands here make our lands cheaper and more economical and no taxes. No state taxes, those are the things that make farming work here and make us make it successful where we can make a living at it. On this size of farm, we couldn't make a living in the lower 48. How they ended up farming here exactly is kind of a fun story. Um, Scott's son Justin always wanted to come to Alaska, 
He loves hunting, wilderness, and isolation. So one day, he was searching online, and he stumbled upon a cattle ranch for sale in Alaska, and it caught him by surprise. I didn't even know there was cows in Alaska, let alone a feed yard, and uh, we've always been one for, for a little bit of a challenge, so... He tried to tell me about it. I ignored him and told his mother about it. And she finally showed it to me on the internet one night. It looked like there was a lot of value in what was being offered for sale there for the price it was being offered for. So his mother and I hadn't had a vacation recently, so we just decided we'd check it out. And uh, They visited in July. Scott's not sure they would have jumped so quickly had it been January. The coldest he's seen is 62 below here. But this time of year, it's perfectly pleasant. You know, we do get extreme cold in the winter, but we don't have extreme uh, conditions where the weather changes from hot to cold instantly and winds and storms and blizzards. And Here it's just pretty steady. We just don't find it that difficult to, f- to finish cattle here. It's, it's, uh, it's really not. Yes, there are challenging days. It takes passion and persistence, just like farming anywhere. But it can also be incredibly rewarding. There's some reward to going out and everything worked today. You know, all the water was on and the cows are all happy and they're fed. And, you know, to watch a line of of 200 cows come out behind that machine that grinds that hay bale and watch a line of 200 cows step up to that on some winter morning when when the steam is rising off of them. It, it, it is a reward that is, I can't describe. And uh, now there are challenging days, you know. There are days when it's 30 or 40 below and a water tank is frozen on you. and. Uh, you, you know, you've got to deal with it. Is you've got to have, it has to be dealt with right then or it could get much worse in a matter of minutes or hours. And, but, you know, I guess if there weren't those challenges, it wouldn't be no fun either, so. You got to get up every morning no matter what the weather is. And you may not want to go outside at 35, 45, whatever below zero and feed cows, but, uh, it doesn't matter what that temperature is, I'm going to get up, I'm going to get dressed, and I'm going to go take care of the 200 head of cows. And when I go to the house in the, in the afternoon, I know that, that my 600 head of cattle, 700, however many we've got on the place at that particular moment, are, are well taken care of and, uh, and doing. There's something pretty rewarding about that. Muggridge Hay and Cattle is located in Delta Junction, a couple hours south of Fairbanks. In the late 70s and early 80s, there were state-funded attempts to revive the dreams of large-scale agriculture here. Alaska was swimming in oil revenue at the time and wanted to invest the money in another economic sector less prone to volatility. So then-Governor Jay Hammond created the Delta Barley Project and the Point McKinsey Dairy Project. Here's his special project coordinator, Bob Palmer, speaking to the Alaska Review in 1979. We have the makings of a renewable resource industry 
that can go a very long ways towards leveling out some of the uh, boom and bust cycles in Alaska. Nothing is more stable as far as an industry is concerned than agriculture. The state ended up spending millions. Barley would be grown to feed dairy cows in a different part of the state. The rest would be shipped south on the railroad and exported from there. But the grand vision never materialized. Very little grain was ever exported. The 80s was a rough time for farms all over the U.S., much less for a totally new industry. Political headwinds and legal issues also played a role, and perhaps the short timeline. In most places, agricultural sectors were developed over decades and centuries, not years. On my drive to Scott and Justin's farm, I pass empty fields of fireweed. The bright pink wildflower is one of the first to grow after fires, and also indicates disturbed ground. But not all the land around here lays fallow. I also pass a farmer on his tractor. Delta is still a farming community. The Barley Project didn't materialize as envisioned, but that doesn't mean it didn't have an impact. Scott and Justin see the potential here, like so many before them did. We, we both want to see agriculture grow exponentially in, in the state of Alaska. Uh, food security and that kind of thing in Alaska is, is uh, at this point, stuff goes a little south and we're in a bad place up here. Um, so food security is huge and, and uh, we, we've got the acreage to do it and the ability to do it. We just have to have to get the, uh, the markets and that kind of thing all here. There's so much potential for agriculture here, but there's so little agriculture. And I mean, it's not like we have a lot of people, 700 and some thousand people. You know, it, it wouldn't take much growth before we could be raising 20, 30, 40, 50 percent of our of our own needs, you know, and, and, and that's what we should be doing. We shouldn't be relying on freight and transportation to bring our food here. I mean, it should be grown right here. And let alone the possibilities for like export, you know, we're closer to Asia than lower 48 is. We, we've probably got more potential for export. We've got a, a pure, more all natural product than the lower 48 has, which is more desired by Asia and European countries. So, I mean, the potential is just, just it doesn't end, you know, the, the problem is infrastructure. Like a processing facility. The state used to own a slaughterhouse and a creamery, but not anymore. Last July, Scott and a group of around 40 others involved in agriculture opened a slaughterhouse. There are a few other facilities in the state, but not many. Having a USDA plant nearby to process meat is essential if people want to get their products to market. We decided that we were tired of waiting on the state or someone to do this for us. We are just going to start this project on our own. It's a building block to something greater, he thinks. And with the possibilities of a more hospitable climate on the horizon, growing the industry is that much more important. They think climate change is happening at two and a half times the pace of everywhere else in the world in Alaska. So if that's the case, and that's what, that's what is going on here, we may be the breadbasket of the, of the nation someday. You know, you know, with with the storm challenges and things going on in the lower 48 anymore, you know, 
we very well have the potential to do that here, I think. And so I'd like to be on the forefront of that. Clean air, the clean water, the soil with high levels of organic matter. Alaska is full of untapped potential for agriculture in many people's eyes. Whether it'll ever be fully realized is in the eye of the beholder. My goal is not to be the biggest cattle producer in the state of Alaska. My goal is to change the way Alaska views agriculture. You've been listening to Season 2 of Out Here, a podcast about life in rural Alaska. You can find more episodes at www.outyearpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Blue Dot Sessions and my wonderfully talented brother, Sam McKinstry, for the music. And thanks to Ian Giori for the artwork and the Rasmussen Foundation for the funding. Just one final thought here before I go. Um, I feel like the conversation around food security is particularly timely amidst a global pandemic. I saw a picture on Facebook the other day of a nearly empty milk shelf in Alaska. The only product they had in stock was produced locally. Reports about slaughterhouses closing down in the lower 48 make me think about that even more. The more diversified the supply chain, the better. Alaska-grown meat could fill in a gap if we end up in a pinch. Stay safe and stay healthy, everyone. For Out Here, I'm Erin McKinstry.